You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, let's dive into it. We'll do some Q&A. Um, dive in. Jimmy, you want to kick us off? Give us our first question. Uh, yeah, and for the record, I've been trying to uh, convince my wife for a long time that I am infallible. And it, uh, <laughs> so thank you for throwing that in there. I think it'll work well in our marriage. Um, Okay, uh, we got uh, lots of questions here. Uh, let's start with something. Um, so I see one of them here that uh, says this. Do you believe that Catholics uh, and Protestant Christians can enjoy fellowship with one another? So uh, this is a question about like, what does, it, uh, what does it mean for us to interact with one another? Uh, it, would it be right to call that uh, fellowship, how, how, how would you uh, understand the way that we're to relate to each other as Christians, I think is the heart of the question. Any of you want to speak to that? You want to go for it? Sure. Yeah. I, I think, again, some of these words are a bit archaic, and we have to redefine what we mean by things, right? So fellowship, in, in the traditional sense, meant having like a, a doctrinal unity on something. That was a fellowship. We had something that brought us together in that way. I think this question, uh, most of the time, people mean, can we enjoy friendship with? Can we enjoy commonality with? But yeah, yeah, absolutely. We can have good Catholic friends. We could uh, even go to a Christian concert to go listen to Jimmy Needham together, you know? Um, we can do all those things together. Um, we, uh, we can do a lot of those things. But, but in the traditional sense of fellowship, where we're saying it, that we are doctrinally unified with someone, no, we're not, we're not in fellowship in that sense. So uh, again, I don't mean that means you can't have Catholic friends. It just means that we're not doctrinally aligned. Uh, would you guys agree or disagree or nuance that somehow? No, I, I think that's uh, pretty accurate. You know, fellowship does have that broad category of what precisely do you mean by that? I mean, obviously befriend and encourage, uh, uh, all of those, those categorical things. But if you're saying we have doctrinal unity that allows us to partner together for gospel ministry, I think you are gonna reach some roadblocks pretty quick. And I'll, I'll put one uh, nuance on that because uh, this church doesn't have doctrinal unity with the church across the street on some issues or the church, you know, up in downtown Dallas on some issues. Uh, however, I think all of us would feel comfortable saying there's lots of churches that aren't our exact tribe that we could have fellowship with. And, and so I think the distinction is, are those doctrinal issues, the, the, the ones that were uh, different on, are they those sort of first tier closed handed uh, issues or are they more of that second tier open handed uh, sort? And I think what Justin, you did such a great job tonight pointing out is on some of the uh, there are a lot, there is a lot of overlap on first tier issues w between Catholics and Protestants. I mean, the, the Trinity is a great example of it, the, the nature of Jesus, those types of things. Uh, but there are some uh, critical doctrinal issues like how we understand the atonement and what Jesus accomplished and how that's applied to a person that... Uh, you can make a really good argument that it rises to the level that it makes it very difficult for us to um, fellowship in that sense. Whereas if we disagreed uh, about um, uh, spiritual gifts, for instance, uh, there's, it's lower on the totem pole in a way that we could say, yeah, I can run with it. I could go to that church. I've been, I've been members at churches where I don't agree with everything about them, but it's, they don't rise to that top tier issue. Is that fair? 
Yeah. yeah. Uh, how about this question? How would you guys respond to this one? What would you say to someone who has recently trusted in Jesus, but still feels the need to go to Catholic mass? Uh, well, um, gosh, so much of it is probably coming from upbringing, right? And you, you even talked about it, uh, at the beginning of your talk, like, uh, we have so much, um, emotion and history and family ties tied to like our experience. I grew up Greek Orthodox. So like, the, you know, the, the experience of all that, uh, uh, did have some meaningful quality to me. And so I would want to get to the bottom of with that person, uh, what's the appeal of mass. And, uh, like you uh, were saying in your talk, if the appeal is, um, the nostalgia or even like, I do feel like I'm, I'm getting to interact with God in sort of a transcendent way that's not always captured in sort of the Protestant uh, church gathering ethos. Like, if that's what you mean, it's like, I, I have a, I personally have a category for that. Um, but if what you mean is uh, that you, there's some appeal of like, I've got to cover my bases, right? That I'm dipping back into sort of like that sacrament because it's imparting to me a measure of grace I wouldn't have otherwise, then I would challenge you that in doing that, you're actually betraying that uh, the work that Jesus has already finally accomplished for you. So, uh, you know, we say this all the time in our sermons, but we want to say true things about the Lord and how we, uh, not just what we say, but how we live and all that. And so if you attending mass um, is somehow you still borrowing that, that tradition of I'm, I'm, I'm getting some bonus grace in doing that, then we it's not saying a true thing about what Jesus has accomplished. So I think the issue is let's get to the bottom of why, not so much the that you are. The why is really important there because the why can even be, and I think a lot of us feel it, um, I, I won't belabor it, you can go really far down this rabbit hole and I think it's an important discussion, but I think a lot of folks in the modern world we live in right now often do feel uh, just a low-grade sense of um, disconnection from um, just history and a bigger, broader tradition. And so sometimes in mass, I think what people are, are also pining for or longing for is, once again, just a connection to something that feels ancient, uh, especially when the world we live in often feels very chaotic and unstable. Uh, it's, we want to feel grounded in something that has thousands of years of history. Uh, the good thing I would say, though, the encouragement there, is that what it means to be Protestant or to be in this gospel-centered tradition that Justin was talking about tonight doesn't mean you have to divorce yourself from church history. Uh, church history of much of the Catholic Church is also our church history. So we don't have to make that trade-off in order to feel tethered and connected to the saints of the last couple thousand years uh, in this very unstable world we often live in. Uh, means we have to abandon the doctrines that we believe in. I, I don't think it has to be an either or there, but it's a both and. Yeah, yeah I, I just follow just as a point of discipleship. Again, the, the why is important. I would just want you to know that Jesus got you covered. You don't need supplementary insurance. Uh, you don't need to come here because you like the worship and the experience and the teaching that's here and then go to mass because just in case. You know, what we're asking you in the gospel is to reject any need for supplementary insurance and to say that Jesus is enough to cover you. But if someone were to tell me, I go to mass and I like to sit in the back and like to listen to the old liturgy and I love sitting in the Catholic, something about that, uh, that's great. I will say that if you're going to be true to the gospel faith, they're going to ask you not to take the Eucharist. And so at some point you're going to have to take, you're going to have to make an intentional choice 
to say that you're going to be Jesus alone, faith alone. Let's talk about the Eucharist for a moment. By the way, uh, if you're not privy to that language, Eucharist, uh, the Lord's Supper, communion, we're, we're talking about the same activity. It's what we did here at the end of uh, the evening. Um, uh, let's maybe just give a cursory understanding of what sort of an evangelical is meaning when we're saying we're, we're taking communion, the Lord's Supper, versus what is happening in the Catholic mind at the Lord's Supper. Could, could we speak to that for a moment, just yeah, to get some clarity? Yeah, so there's, very, there's various different views, I mean, and, and lots of fractions. I mean, you have transubstantiation, right, which believes that the body and the bread, lots of, lots of give, uh, Walk away with a really great theological word so you feel like you got your money's worth. Yeah. So transubstantiation, that'll impress all your friends Night. tomorrow. Just say it, yeah, yeah. you'll get tons of points, that's right. Very simply, it, just, it means that uh, Catholics believe that the bread actually becomes the body the wine becomes the blood. Like it, it actually takes on the essence of that. Um, there's other views that, for better or worse, they take on a more of a memorial view, that it symbolizes, that it's, it's, it's um, symbolizing something that Jesus did. Now, I think the biggest difference between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism is that when you take the Lord's Supper in the Roman Catholic Church, you are receiving saving grace at that moment. It's being dispensed and handed out to you at that moment, you are doing something for a spiritual benefit to receive that, that saving grace, um, that justifying grace. However, in a Protestant church, we're not taking it because something's like that's happening. We're taking it to celebrate that something's already been done. We're celebrating the fact that Jesus has died, that his body was broken, that his blood was shed. And not only that, so we have this, we have this reflective, retrospective view where we're looking on the past and going, look what Jesus did. We're also looking forward, according to Paul, and looking ahead and saying, look what Jesus is going to do. We're going to be seated at a table with our Lord. When he comes back, we're going to eat and feast with him. So for us, I think the biggest difference between uh, Roman Catholicism, Lord's Supper, and our Lord's Supper is ours is a celebration of joy that's in Jesus, both past and future. I think in, in a Roman Catholic view, it's a necessity, this present moment that we must take. And that, uh, that actually brings us uh, nicely to uh, questions on justification. Um, folks have been writing in asking about um, the, the, dis the differences in how uh, we understand justification from our Ro Roman Catholic uh, friends and family. And uh, you, you addressed it here, but I, 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 I do think, um, just circling back about this, because I, for me, anyways, this is the crucial issue that, that makes the big d divide between Catholics and Protestants. Protestants. And uh, I think it's worth saying, so uh, when you're thinking about the cross, what Jesus did, the atonement, how it's applied to you, that, that's kind of the, the bucket of questions we're talking about. And Justin um, alluded to it when he was talking about the function, the role of communion uh, in a person's mind in the, in the Catholic community. Uh, and this is a, a big distinction. And it, so it's worth saying this, uh, when it comes to something like the atonement, R Roman Catholics and Protestants don't actually disagree on the atonement. They believe in, both, both camps of people believe in substitutionary atonement, that Jesus was a substitute on the cross. Um, the issue in the atonement is, um, did Jesus on the cross uh, procure a, a possibility of salvation for us, or did he procure an, an actuality of salvation for us? Uh, so the Roman Catholic position is not that Jesus died and, and purchased you, 
and you and you and you, but rather that Jesus died to purchase, and you probably heard these terms before, a treasury of merit, right, uh, of grace that is then um, doled out to folks within the Catholic community upon their participation in the sacraments. So, so Jesus' death gave you and I a possibility of salvation if we would operate within that sort of sacramental system, sort of the um, uh, uh, communion uh, being one of them, the marital rites, unction, all those things, uh, baptism, infant baptism, those types of things. And every time you do that in faith, um, you are actually getting deposits from the church, the, the Roman Catholic Church, sort of into your spiritual bank account uh, that is working toward your progressive justification. There's a lot of words there, but I do think that's a really big distinction because it makes, it makes uh, things like baptism or infant baptism in, in uh, their view and uh, communion, the Eucharist and those elements, um, they're doing something different than, than they're doing in, in our uh, understanding. They're actually procuring your salvation. Uh, and uh, that's a really important distinction to make uh, because I think it, uh, on the scriptural view, I think the cross is so much more beautiful uh, because we get to say, no, he actually purchased people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Like he, he had you in mind at the cross. He didn't purchase a possibility, he purchased an actuality that you would be saved. I think that's a really beautiful truth. Yeah. Yeah, if you think about it too, like um, reading church history, it's fascinating. If you want to see how that actually played out, in the medieval period, um, often as popes would uh, have the most authority and power even over kings of, of the countries all throughout the world, the, the, the way they would often wield that is exactly what Jimmy's talking about. If that's your view of what keeps you sustained in your salvation, like I have to continue to be able to have access to communion, um, the greatest threat you could have in that moment is excommunication. So to be cut off or to have the threat of excommunication is not just a removal from your community, but it's also a removal from the very substance that sustains your salvation, uh, which is very different than what a, a Protestant, a traditional Protestant belief and view would be. And I think that has huge implications as we think about these things. So I got a question yeah. uh, that, that's uh, here. It says, if the Bible is our final authority, which Justin, you talked about tonight, does that mean it's our only authority? So... Yeah. yeah, this is Ryan's soapbox. He loves this topic. So I'm going to be very brief. Yeah, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be brief because I, I think Ryan's words got some value here. But when we say sola scriptura, the, the reformers didn't mean nuda scriptura, meaning nothing but scripture. Okay. So they're not saying that God doesn't, doesn't help us come to an understanding of truth in other means. First off, you can look at nature, and as Paul says, right, you can look at creation and see that God is powerful and that he exists. That's not sola scriptura in the sense of nothing but scripture. I can go to the Grand Canyon and see that there is a powerful God who exists. But what we're saying is, is that in these other ways of coming to truth, only scripture gives us the authoritative statement of how to be saved, okay? It is God's special revelation, God can speak through history, through uh, geography, through, you know, through many different means. And so we're not saying nothing but. And we actually uh, hamstring ourselves when we say nothing but. 
What we're saying is, is that what is the foundation? We're not saying that there's nothing else there. We're saying, what is the foundation? Sola Scripture, only the Bible alone, only Scripture alone. But there's all kinds of other things that God has given us to help us come to truth as well. So yeah, I think that's such a good summation of it. And I think it's, it's so important, especially for us Western American, very individualistic people at times. That's the cultural context you and I swim inside of, where sometimes if we are so far on that side where it's like the Bible only, that actually has a way of hurting our ability to, to be under good authority and godly authority. Because um, good authority and godly authority is, we're, we're using the Bible, but we're also saying, um, in the context of a local church, we're submitting ourselves to authority. That, that also is a means of grace that God has given us. Um, and it's not that we as Protestants, or even here at Stonegate, I wanna be very emphatically clear that we deny or dismiss or look down on church history, that it doesn't have any role to play in informing or influencing uh, our faith. Um, in fact, I think a lot of our interpretive work, how we understand the Bible, should be very strongly weighed against church history. Uh, as Justin was saying, I had a professor in seminary who was just like, if you are discovering something in the Bible you think no one else has discovered in 2,000 years, you're probably wrong. And <laughs> that was very freeing. It was like, yeah, I probably am wrong. Because I mean, men and women have been interacting with this book for 2,000 years. And so it actually brought me a lot of comfort and confidence to realize I could be greatly informed and influenced by church history in my hermeneutic, my understanding of the Bible, and not just go, man, it's just me and a Bible and whatever I read here is absolutely true and I need no other authority. Uh, the very best authorities in my life have been pastors and elders and friends and church community that are filled with the spirit, that love the Lord, that also sometimes correct my, my erroneous ways and point me back to truth in life. That, that is why the local church matters so much. Uh, we, have, we have lost that, I think, in our kind of postmodern world. Like, it's not just um, that uh, we gather on Sundays um, and that's helpful for me because it stirs my affections for Jesus. That's true. But it, it's a, one of God's protective mechanisms against you running off the reservation. It's one of God's protective mechanisms from us abandoning orthodoxy, from us um, damaging the, the, our lives and the people around us. Uh, it's, it's amazing to take a deep dive into like how God talks about pastoral leadership, the, cru the crucial nature of it, uh, the, the ways in which us as pastors are held accountable in eternity for the way we, we're responsible for God's flock. I mean, so it, it is an authority, but infallible, no. Primary, supreme, no. Uh, that is uh, God's uh, infallible word. Yeah, so the scripture is just a, it's a ranking system, right? It's just, what do we, what is the, that's the key. It's like, what is the final authority? Again, not only authority, but final authority. Who, who can correct everything else? So I think that distinction is important to keep in mind. Got another question here. Uh, some of my Catholic friends say that Protestants believe in cheap grace. How would you respond to that? So probably two things need to happen. Uh, we need to define what, what they probably mean by cheap grace. And then what, what would we say to that as evangelical Protestants? I think the critique is valid. Um, I feel like as Protestants, we have preached the gospel of easy believism, where just believe in Jesus and what you do doesn't matter. And that's actually been a great uh, apologetic in the Roman Catholic Church to say, look at what those Protestants believe. 
they believe that just because they believe in Jesus, they can sleep with whoever they want on Saturday, they can get as drunk as they want on Saturday, as long as they believe in Jesus, everything's covered. It kind of gives them a license to sin. So I think the critique is well-founded that traditionally Protestant churches have not emphasized how grace is transformative. I disagree, however, on the critique that grace is cheap. It costs the Son of God his broken body and blood. That doesn't seem cheap to me. It costs him a death on a cross. I don't know what else I could add to make it more expensive. My own works are not enough. If Jesus' own death on the cross was not expensive enough to make it expensive grace, I don't know what would be. Yeah, and if you think about it too, I, I, that's such wise words that Justin's sharing. Um, I think the conversation really is one that Protestants do wrestle with in a lot of uh, theological circles, which is important, is that we as, as Protestants have to be willing to not just let Jesus be Savior, but also Lord. And this has also been a conversation that in the last 30, 40 years in the, the, the Christian world is, has been an important one, I think, in many ways. Because there can be a, a false decisionism that is placed upon someone. I made a decision at one point, but yet there's been no desire ever since to submit my life fully to the Lordship of Jesus. That the question of Jesus is Lord, how does that inform tomorrow and the next day and the next day and what I do with my time and my talent, my treasure and my marriage and my life. If that question never really intersects into our life, I think that is a fair question of like, but have you actually understood and experienced grace? Um, and, and to Justin's point, grace isn't cheap, but really what grace does is grace transforms that if you really do understand the good news of the gospel, um, it's not the sense of like, man, it just means I can do whatever I want from here on out, but rather I've been radically renewed to now, I, I don't want to uh, egregiously and explicitly sin anymore. I have new appetites and affections where actually I desire the things of God. And so I think that should be the encouragement we have for folks of like, if someone is going like, man, this just means now I can do whatever I want because Jesus is my savior. The encouragement I would have, and just the, the question I usually end up asking that person is like, have you really understood what grace is? Because grace transforms and renews your mind and your heart and your affections. Like I didn't love church before I became a Christian. I didn't love the Bible. I didn't even really like Christians before I became a Christian. Uh, I, none of it uh, was appealing to me. And I became a Christian and like that, my appetites changed. It wasn't like someone told me I had to read the Bible or I had to hang out with Christians or go to church or repent of my sin. I wanted to do those things. I see uh, lots of questions on here about faith and works, um, which we, this is kind of in the same space, so we might, we might want to tackle something else, but I do think there's a tension that folks uh, hear when, when they hear us say we are, it is not faith plus works that we're saved. This is where people get into the easy believism critique. But I, Justin, I, I would probably just bring our attention back to what you said about a tree's fruit and root. Uh, that is, I think, the, the distinction to make, that if you are not bearing fruit, this is what I would say, and I have said to, to many uh, folks who profess Christ and are living like hell. I say, uh, it, um, if you are living uh, in such a way that bears no resemblance to uh, Christianity or the fact that you 
treasure Jesus. You should have no confidence that you're his. Not because those works are the thing that gets you in the door, but because everyone who genuinely hungers after the Lord, like Ryan says, are actually radically changed from the inside. It is the, the great boast of the New Testament and what, what God has done. He has not just saved people, but changed their hearts. It's Ezekiel 36, it's Jeremiah 31, that God actually now on the other side of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, he reaches into a human heart and he puts a new one in there. So it would be weird for you to, to say you're his, to say you've been radically transformed in the inside and then on the outside be doing the exact same stuff. You don't have to tell a butterfly to fly. You know, when it goes from being a caterpillar to a butterfly, it, it knows it's supposed to fly. I mean, it's a new thing. It's become a new creation. A metamorphosis has literally taken place. Um, and, and one last thing I'd say, I think these words are really helpful because even inside that word works, it's like, it's, this is an important distinction. I think it's really important for us as Christians to have. There's a big difference between earning and effort. So, and if you don't understand that, I think sometimes these waters get very muddied. We, what we mean is that you're saved by grace alone is that there's, there's, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. It's been purchased for you. It's been accomplished by Jesus and it's received by faith alone. But inside of a relationship with Jesus, there is all sorts of effort. Um, I mean, waking up every day and sometimes deciding like, I'm gonna wake up and read my Bible. I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna repent of my sin and I'm gonna try to show Jesus to this person over here and I'm gonna share the gospel with them. That, that sometimes takes effort, you know? But it's in the confines of relationship. The relationship already exists and now I'm working out uh, with effort that those desires that the Lord's already given me. I don't know if that time is, is right. Okay, a couple more questions, great. What do we got, what do we got, what do we got? Are we doing okay? Are we okay? Just, yes, all right. Hmm, should I read the Apocrypha? If so. Why? <laughs> I, I love reading the Apocrypha. It's got some great stuff in it, man. It's amazing. <laughs> I, I, it actually is a fun read. Like uh, Bell and the Dragon is actually quite a fun read. With the name Dragon. That's you know, amazing. It's just great. And then you get uh, Susanna. You know, that's ama it's an amazing book. There's a lot of good things you can get from the Apocrypha as far as like good stories. And it's got great, great things. And I love reading First and Second Maccabees and learning about bravery and standing firm on your beliefs. And you get great pictures of martyrs, Jewish martyrs there. Um, however, I, I read uh, the Apocrypha a bit like I'd read, I don't know, Narnia or... Um, I don't, what, what are the things you kids read these or days? Just you know? a good history. That's I right. Mean, yeah. yeah. There, there's yeah. a lot of historical documents that, that historians still reference. Not from, it's not historical, but it's, it's almost like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. I love, I love I reading that. I think there's lots of good stuff that you can gain from them. And, and I'm actually, my viewpoint is, is if you're uh, solid, mature in your faith and confidence in Jesus, you can read other things in confidence and be able to cherry pick them. Um, oftentimes we like to, to buy wholesale doctrinal trees, theology trees, or to cut them down completely. I'm like, you don't have to do that. You can read something. My goodness, you could read Harry Potter and get some kind of theological truth out of it. I'm so sorry. I'm just saying. Just saying. I don't know what happened. You know, just saying. The wheels kind of fell off there at the end. My, my kids watched the show uh, called Coco. Uh, no, was it Coco? Coco yeah. Melon? No, it was Coco. The... Uh, uh, 
I don't know, some Hopefully. some Disney it's show. Fine. Yeah. Uh, and and the thing so is, you're into witchcraft. Yeah, yeah. Skeletons. Yes. Okay. Day of the Dead. This is yeah. the last time yeah. I'll lead one of these things, <laughs> yeah, just so you guys know. No. Um, we'll make sure. It's so <laughs> so I think it's Coco or something like that. But the, there's a theology in it. It's based off of the the Mexican cultural uh, viewpoint of Dia de los Muertos, right? Of the of the dead. And the whole hope is in the theology that you have to have your picture on the Asenfrenda to be remembered. If you lose your picture, then you lose your eternal life in a sense. You fade uh, from your existence. We watch that. We sing the songs. Uh, for me, the biggest part of raising uh, kids who are mature in the faith is to help them uh, digest and say, okay, what was trash? Here's the reality. We can watch Coco and enjoy the songs and even sing the goofy songs while at the same time totally recognizing the bad theology in it. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm going to expose them to all kinds of trash, but I do think that there's a maturity. You have a level of I have a level of trash. Trash meter. But I yeah. do think one of the things missing in our, in our Christian discipleship is, you know, we Christians were the first cancel culture. We were the first ones that if there was something we didn't like, we just cut it out completely. If we something we didn't understand, we cut it out completely. I think it would have been better if we discipled people how to recognize and discern and spit out bones and all of that stuff. So read the Apocrypha, but don't read it as truth, you know. Don't read it as final authoritative. I, I think there's some good benefit and fun. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, this was, it's been great working for Stonegate, but I'm probably <laughs> <laughs> just, just want to say that on the record. If I get fired under my desk, there's a file. Yeah, you know, it's been great. In memorandum. So. Give us one more. Yeah. Um, uh, we can end with this one. Uh, so, Justin, you mentioned a few ways to winsomely engage Roman Catholic friends. Uh, is there anything else we'd want to add uh, to encourage us in doing that? Friends or family? Uh, things that we need to be thoughtful about. Uh, uh, maybe best practices for engagement with them to winsomely engage them with the truth of the gospel. Uh, anything else we, we might want to add? Well, I'll just say from listening to Justin's talk, I thought he had such good counsel. Uh, you know, there's an old principle before you're going to enter into a discussion with someone, you should be able to articulate what they believe in a way that they would say, yeah, that is exactly what I believe. I couldn't have said it better myself. So uh, being willing to do that buys you a lot of credibility and respect with that other person. And then, you know, uh, major on the majors and not the minors. You know, whether you're, this is conversations, and a lot of these uh, that we've been doing, some of these seminars, I think it's so easy to get sidetracked. And once you do, uh, you're digging in your heels or you're frustrating that person or you've already lost the relationship over things that really are inconsequential. Um, so how do we, we major on uh, what really matters? And even as Justin summed up tonight, like how do we major on Jesus? Uh, and keep that the center of the conversation. I think that's such a good posture for us to have in a lot of our relationships. Yeah, and I would add, if you're, if you're from a Roman Catholic background, there's, there's some of you that are friends of mine, and you became a Christian, and your relationship with your family changed. Uh, and you're wondering, like, how do, I, how do I do Thanksgiving now? How do I do Christmas now? It just feels completely different, like my family's ostracizing me. You believe in the gospel that is not by works, so relate to them in a way that is not by works. Love them despite the changed relationship. Love them despite their changed attitudes for be consistent, show up, love, be the first one to hug, be the first one to kiss, be the first one to give a a birthday card. Stay consistent and show them that their relationship with you is not based on their works either. Just like your relationship with God's not based on your works. That's right. So good. 
I would uh, only add one more thing that's uh, maybe just a practical, you know, the, uh, one of the great benefits of engaging with uh, Roman Catholics is there is so much overlap. One of the overlaps is we all love the 66 books. They got some bonus features, but we, <laughs> but like we all get down with the 66. And, um, and, and it makes it, to me, uh, I see an open door there for like, uh, depending on the relationship, it's like what? Um, what would it look like for uh, you guys to sit down and read a book of the Bible together, to, to study as friends, and for you to even come really low agenda? The, do we believe that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, that it that pierces, dividing soul and spirit, bone and marrow, that it can sort the thoughts and intentions of the heart? Do we believe it does that kind of work? Do we believe that, like what Paul says, that it, that it makes one wise unto salvation? Do we believe that it does that kind of work as the spirit comes along and enables it? If so, man, let's crack this thing open with our Roman Catholic friends and family members and just go, I, dude, I've been wanting to study 2 Timothy. And, uh, if you're interested, I'm going to be reading it at this coffee shop. And this, now we're in God's word and we're getting to let him do what he does uh, best, which is to shine uh, the light bright on uh, his son through his spirit using his word. I think that could be a great sort of practical step in that. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, we didn't get to all the questions. So if you have additional questions that you really want answered, we'll be around. Uh, Justin will be down front. We'd love to talk. If you want prayer, uh, we'll have folks down front that would love to pray with you and encourage you. Uh, I just really want to say a big hearty thank you for coming out tonight. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's just a, the, a night like this so invigorates my soul of thinking about like the health of our church, um, doing things like this, where we get to think deeply about things that really matter and do this kind of stuff together. So thank you for making this kind of investment. And uh, thanks again to Justin for being willing to teach and lead tonight. And uh, as I said before, September 17th, we'll have our next one with our very own Kelly Needham. Ooh. Love it. Love you guys. Have a great night. Thanks for coming out. <laughs>